Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson and my guest today is Dr. Gregory Postma. Dr. Postma is a Professor and Vice Chairman in the Department of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery at the Medical College of Georgia and is the Director of the Centre for Voice, Airway and Swallowing Disorders since 2005. He received his uh, residency uh, from the University of North Carolina and then did a fellowship in laryngology and professional voice at Vanderbilt University and joined faculty at Wake Forest in 1996. His clinical interests span the entire field of laryngology, including voice disorders, professional and singing voice care, dysphagia, complex swallowing disorders, gastroesophageal reflux, chronic cough, to name a few. He is one of the pioneers in the area of in-office surgery, including transnasal esophagoscopy and unsedated laryngeal and airway laser surgery, and his work has helped revolutionize the care of individuals with a host of voice and swallowing problems. He is a past president of the American Bronchoesophagologic Association and, and the Dysphagia Research Society. He is author or co-author of over a 100 peer-reviewed publications, has written 50 chapters uh, and invited articles, as well as edited three books. He has given more than 600 presentations on a wide array of, laryng of laryngologic topics and has been selected as one of America's top doctors. And it's a pleasure to talk to you today after that long introduction. How are you, Dr. Postma? I'm doing well, now. Thank you so much for the, for the introduction and the invitation. All right. Uh, the topic of today is dysphagia. Um, so let's begin with... What is dysphagia, and, and how common is it? Well, dysphagia is a symptom, not a diagnosis. It's a symptom of difficulty swallowing. A lot of folks uh, tend to think it's a diagnosis, but it's a symptom that requires uh, one evaluate and determine a diagnosis. The incidence of dysphagia, it's fairly common. A lot of folks really aren't aware of it since so many otolaryngology programs don't really do it justice. If you look at some of the uh, big surveys, they state that in the general population, about 5% of North Americans will complain of dysphagia at some point in their lifetime. But I think the, the numbers are actually higher, particularly if you look at some of the subgroups that we see. If you see individuals with strokes, uh, depending on if it's acute or chronic, upwards of 70% of those individuals will complain of dysphagia. If you look at um, Parkinson's patients, 70 to 80% will have dysphagia. And the place that you and I are very familiar with, head and neck cancer patients. I like to say that almost 100% of our head and neck cancer patients will have dysphagia at one point or another, either a manifestation of the tumor itself, or more commonly, it's a sequela of our treatment for their malignancy. And that's becoming a greater and greater part of otolaryngology practice as we, the era of radiation and chemotherapy uh, remains very strong, and we're seeing these people on a literally daily basis in our office. So... Uh, if someone is referred to you with dysphagia, and this is, is fairly broad to begin with, what are the key elements of the clinical history uh, that uh, you want to take into account when assessing them for the first time? You know, there's books have lists of different possible complaints, but I think there are a couple of very key questions 
that will help you to give give you the etiology, but also point you in how you're going to evaluate a given patient. You always want to take a good history, and certainly you'll cover some of the things we just mentioned: history of head and neck cancer, neurologic disease, reflux, and so forth. Prior surgery, and something often not talked about or thought about is the history of intubation. A lot of people undergo intubation and have mild to moderate swallowing problems for a long time following that. Uh, Other specific questions are the type of dysphagia. Primarily, is it liquid versus solid food dysphagia, or is it both? It's, It's kind of generalizing a little too much, but in general, people with neurologic disorders are more likely to start with dysphagia for thin liquids, while someone with a mass lesion bad esophagitis, strictures, tumors, so forth, are much more likely to complain of solid food dysphagia. The other two questions that I harp on our residents or fellows early on is to ask about, well, three things actually. Number one, history of pneumonia or not gives you an idea of severity and chronicity of the problem. And then weight loss and whether or not they've changed their diet. It's very interesting, either from the patient's point of view or their spouse or caregiver, you can get the comment that it's taking them twice or three times longer to eat than it used to. And often the patient won't be aware of that, but the spouse, child, caregiver is aware of that. So that's probably some of the key special questions you have to be certain to ask about. Now, there are grading systems which look at uh, symptoms and severity scales. How do you incorporate that into your practice, and, and how useful are they in correlating with disease? Well, no, that's, that's a good question. As you know, there are a host of validated um, symptom indices uh, that the patients can fill out, whether it's the MDADI, uh, the E10, and there's several others. Um, and we use some of these, but it's often for... To follow therapy, not so much to make a diagnosis, but to follow response to treatment. And obviously, that's often part of a research study. Mm. So, for example, we would have someone with the Zenker's diverticulum or head and neck cancer um, may fill out either the MDATI or our institution, more commonly the eating assessment tool or EAT-10. And then they can fill that out again after a given intervention. So if someone undergoes um, the endoscopic or open repair of a Zenkers or dilation of a stricture, treatment for reflux, or just conservative changes, work with our speech-language pathologists, one can then use that as a way of following response to treatment. I don't think any of the indices are specific for a given diagnosis, although they are used in certain populations. Damn Daddy was validated in a head and neck cancer population, for example. And so... Um, they are they are been validated in certain populations, but they're used uh, often as a general tool in almost anybody. All right, so you've taken your uh, your, your history um, and you're going on to your physical examination. Um, talk me through that. Well, physical examination, you know, it's important on any initial visit, you know, that they can undergo not just a complete um, head neck exam as you would do in any otolaryngology first visit. Uh, but there are other things you're looking for as well. I'll often be sitting behind the desk or at a desk on the computer when people walk by, and it's it's not uncommon to, to, to see some of the gait disturbance of one sort or another. Or if someone's emaciated or uh, incapacitated, they'll come in a wheelchair. It sounds silly, but you, but this is all part of the whole picture of looking 
react, someone's nutritional status, their ability to withstand stress, how, if they've had acute or chronic weight loss, these type of things. Um, the quality of a voice, just in getting the history when you're asking the questions, it's foolish to not listen to the voice. Do they have a breathy voice? Do they have strong voice with good projection? That will let you have some idea of a lot of closure. If they are clearing their throat or coughing during the examination, that will give you the hint there may be some aspiration. If she's already complete a lot of closure, then a classic wet voice that we've all heard, you know, often in stroke patients or in some of our head and neck cancer patients, where someone's practically drowning in the office when they're trying to talk with you. So there's a lot of these other hints that you won't see on any kind of regular head and neck examination. The exam examination itself is, is, is very standard and a very brief screen neurologic examination as well, looking at tons, tongue strength and this type of thing. Assuming you, uh, you'll pop a scope down and, and, and have a look around and this crosses over into reflux a little bit, but, um, there's often, uh, so much, uh, crossover between, uh, these two, uh, conditions anyway. How useful are those, uh, uh, reflux findings as far as correlating with uh, dysphagia? That's it. That, that, we could be here the rest of the evening doing that. <laughs> We're up for dinner and get, a, and get a scotch later or some wine. We I'm in. Wow. You're in. <laughs> the, that's a tough one. Just looking at dysphagia in general on the examination, um, before talking about signs of reflux, there are tons of things that that you should be looking for in the patient with dysphagia. And certain things we can see with the endoscopic examination that are missed on contrast studies, the key thing being the ability to handle retain the patient's own secretions. That can't be tested radiologically, and I think it is maybe um, the single most important thing we look for. If one sees pooling in a piriforms of the follicular or actually laryngeal penetration when they're sitting there, that has to be explained. It can never be ignored. I'll see voice patients that will have significant pooling. And before we address the voice problem in a surgical manner, let's say, we're getting a modified barium swallow on these people to make certain that we're not missing something else. You'd hate to do a laryngoplasty or an injection augmentation on a patient and find out they also had an a upper esophageal web or a small early Zenker's diverticulum that you could have dealt with in the same sitting. Mm. And so you are very careful with that in, in that regard. It gives you the opportunity to do an endoscopic swan evaluation on patients, which um, often can give us a lot of extra information when you can challenge someone, not just with clear, thin liquids, but applesauce, and then we keep saltine crackers. They're almost tasteless, dry little biscuits. They're horrible. But to see how a patient can, how long it takes them to chew and how they handle solids as well. You're looking at laryngeal penetration, aspiration. You're looking for residue after that. And some people will regurgitate, obviously. If you've got a bad motility disorder, a bad um, cricopharyngeus dysfunction, or a diverticulum. Back to your actual original question about um, reflux findings, that can really take a very long time, and it's somewhat controversial. In general, I think that anybody can be taught how to evaluate a larynx, then use a validated system such as the reflux finding score um, and come up with very close to the same numbers. It's a common fallacy that people will argue that, well, you called the vocal fold a plus two and I called it a plus one, and you called the posterior commissure a plus two and I called it a plus three. The 
bottom line is when you actually look at the total numbers and you compare it to normal versus abnormal, there's very rarely any actual disagreement. Yeah. Um, it's either, you know, it's either very close to normal or it's very bad. And so you don't get a lot of this. It's the gestalt. And calling a reflux binding score, and that was Jamie Coffin's initial work at Wake Forest that Peter Belofsky and I worked with him on, it probably would have been better to have been termed an edema finding score or a laryngeal inflammatory score or something along this lines because different things can cause laryngeal edema. And it probably was short-sighted looking back over 15 years to have called it a reflux finding score uh, because if someone has a dramatic allergic response to something, they're going to have laryngeal edema. It's not reflux. If someone's um, intubated for two or three hours for whatever abdominal procedure they're having, then you scope to the next day, it's not going to be normal. And if your reflux finding score is in the abnormal region, you're not going to scream reflux. You're going to scream three-hour intubation. Yeah. And so you have to use any scoring system um, in light of the patient's history. And so I think it's important that you take a good history, make a good examination, uh, before you run off and start screaming, it's reflux, it's reflux, it's reflux. I'm a reflux believer, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of everything in the upper upper aerodynamic tract. So you mentioned modified barium swallow. Uh, are there routine investigations that you would get for someone presenting with dysphagia? Well, let's subdivide it two different ways. The person that comes in who's a uh, 58-year-old Caucasian male smoker, um, overweight, complains of um, heartburn three times a week. He's not on a proton pump inhibitor. That comes in the office, and he's and he's um, got significant solid food dysphagia. You know, and it's easier to think: Does he have a tumor, for example? So you'll do a routine fiber op, or excuse me, flexible laryngoscopy. Take a look there, and then what's this person likely to have, and how would you evaluate? It? Well, certainly this person could have mass lesion in the esophagus, more likely has bad esophagitis, and may have a stricture. So at that point, I would look at this and I would ask the fellow, the resident, what do we do? What do you think we should do at this point? And our, our, we have many options. And But I think it's been common sense. patient doesn't evenometry right there. If you're thinking statistically that you're more likely to have a mass lesion or esophagitis, then you're going to look with your eye or you're going to get a barium swallow on that person. To have to wait a week or so to get a modified barium swallow and then either not get an esophageal follow-through or get a poorly, you know, you can barely see an esophageal follow-through, you're still stuck, but you still have to evaluate the esophagus. Right. So you've got to make that decision up front. If the patient has tolerated the laryngoscopy very easily and didn't whine or complain, we're actually very likely to take someone like that place them on a PPI for two weeks so you can handle any routine esophagitis and then drop a transnatal esophagoscope in them. And then you can look and evaluate them for strictures, esophagitis that didn't respond to its PPIs, eosinophilic esophagitis, esophageal tumors, big hiatal hernia, so on and so forth. A person the same age who's had two strokes or had a head injury whose primary problem is that he has a wet voice or he chokes a lot on liquids would never get that kind of evaluation. 
you're going to be thinking more along the lines of a central problem or some type of neurologic issue, and in which we're much more likely um, to do an endoscopic swallowing evaluation or a modified bearing on the swallow and go down that pathway. And so the history and then the, 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 the directed examination will lead us, which wrote, now, it's not rare that individuals will get, end up going, getting both. Um, particularly if, if you're going down one pathway and the evaluation turns up nothing, and then you're stuck going back the other direction. And so none of these is a, is a, you know, definitive. Everyone will solve this patient has to go this way. Right. But it's the smart place to start since we're trying to reach the, come to a diagnosis quickly and with the least financial burden so everyone doesn't get every possible examination when they come busy. What is the role of the speech therapist in the management of the dysphagic patient and when, when do you bring them in? Well, a lot of it depends on practical matters. How many speech language pathologists we have in a given center? How many people are there on a given um, office hours? You know, certain days you've got someone, certain days you don't, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. In a best practice situation, I think that a speech-sided pathologist should be part of your team in both the evaluation and the management of the patient. I think that people that are, you know, soloing these kind of patients are doing their patients a disservice. I think that the role of the speech-sided pathologist, it's almost impossible to overemphasize it. I have been astounded. It's like voice disorders. Your voice surgery outcomes are way better when they're working closely with a voice speech language pathologist. And my medical and surgical interventions, I get better outcomes, which means my patients get better outcomes when they're working with a speech language pathologist who knows dysphagia. Whether or not they're learning to, to alter their diet, whether or not they're compensating with postural maneuvers of different sorts, whether or not they're slowly getting stronger with exercises, it doesn't matter. They're going to get a better result. If they want to thank me for that when they're done, I'm, I'm more than happy to accept the, their, their thanks. Uh, but it's part of a team approach. And likewise, treatment is the same way, particularly in neurolo- patients that head neck cancer and neurologic uh, swallowing disorders. Speech like pathologists are key. Let's say if, if someone has a problem, whether it's after a stroke or chemoradiation, with the crack of pharynges. Well, you can open that and you can dilate that every week if you want, but if you can't bring the larynx, the ringohyoid complex anteriorly and elevate it, you're going to have a heck of a time swallowing. And certainly there are experimental devices out there that can do that. Certainly you can put sutures around it and statically lift it under the mandible. But None of that can hold a candle to someone developing the strength by working with a speech language pathologist. And once again, then they think you did a great job. But the point is, pharyngeal strength and the ability to elevate the laryngohyoid complex is absolutely vital in people with cricopharyngeal dysfunction. And you can be a great surgeon and do all the dilations and as you want, but you're not going to get the outcomes your patients deserve without working with a speech language pathologist. You mentioned diet modification. Um... I guess this is a, a, a broad question, and the reality is you probably, as you say, would do it in conjunction with your speech therapist, but are there recommendations that you uh, would make for the dysphagic patient as far as um, diet modification? Well, sure. And there's two different directions you go, being more restrictive or less restrictive. 
we have people that show up in our office that have been NPO and they've been pagan for a period of time, and you evaluate them, and there doesn't seem to be anything wrong. And this is not the small, small percentage of people with phasiophobia or, or a psychiatric issue that keeps them. We're talking about people that are trying to swallow. But some people, they're rule followers. If you tell them you're not gonna, you're not gonna swallow, they're not gonna swallow. They're scared. They've been burned before. They've had that pneumonia. They've had a peg now for 11 months. And then you look at the chart and they had a stroke 11 months ago. And now you do an exam and then you do an MCM swallow evaluation or a modified barium swallow and everything's normal. And we had one just recently. We just pulled the peg out. Told them, eat, you know, <laughs> go away. <laughs> and they did great. And they're ecstatic with this kind of thing. We've had people that will, you know, most people don't take it out the same visit. We have people we start feeding them and they come back in two weeks and they, you know, and then they're not using their peg. They still want to wait a while before they take out, you know, it, it's comfort to them. They've got that in case something goes wrong. Yeah. But that's one side of the coin that people have been overly restrictive. These are usually people that have been inpatients. And they got lost to follow up a little bit, or they saw a community speech pathologist who perhaps wasn't as sophisticated or didn't have access that week to the radiology suite or doesn't do endoscopic swan evaluation. So they did just like a bedside swan evaluation. They coughed twice. So they oh, stay NPO. So it's not uncommon. The more common thing, though, certainly is when someone comes to us and how do we restrict them? And I don't do as much in that area. Um, I will very commonly restrict people from thin liquids. But beyond that's about it for me. Because often they've already come with restrictions or I'll allow, I'll, I'll want, not allow, but I will desire for our speech language pathologist to take the lead in that area. And so I can tell people, you know, I can be a very, very beginner speech language pathologist. I can get rid of your thin liquids. We can do a head turn to the side where the cord is paretic or paralyzed or the pharynx is immobile on one side and the and the hypopharynx is dilated, we can do a chin tuck. But beyond that, I leave that to our speech language pathology team. And they do a fantastic job. And it's always funny when I gave I did a webinar a month or so ago for the National Foundation of Swan Disorders. And it's it's always amazes me that there's always a big group of speech language pathologists who email you or talk to you after a presentation and says, We need ENT people to work with us like this. And then you get an almost equal number of emails of people from of ENT surgeons that we need speech language pathologists <laughs> work with us. <laughs> so I think you just got to get out there, look for them, because being a team is absolutely vital in swine disorders more so than I think in voice disorders. Really does go to the heart of the relationship between speech pathologists and, and otolaryngologists, uh, particularly with this with this symptom. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the problem is, as I said earlier, in the best possible world, they'd be there every visit. And they begin paid for their time. And the problem is there's there's logistics issues and then there's the economic issues of whether or not they're going to be paid for doing the therapy or the evaluation. And um, it, it can be very frustrating for both the us, us as providers and certainly from the patient's aspect as well. So in the absence uh, of finding anything obvious on your uh, physical examination, your investigations outside of this, this symptom, um, what uh, is there medical therapy that you would recommend at that point? Without a diagnosis? Well, uh, there, were no, there were no obvious clinical signs uh, when you examined them, but they continue to have a symptom of dysphagia. Um, I, you, guess, yeah, I think I'd, you may be going down this road or not, but it's, it's worth our time 
maybe to, to go down this trail, is that of a foreign body sensation in the throat, globus sensation. It's a phrase I hate for a lot of reasons, and I don't, I, I laugh at my fellows and residents, so they know not to say the word globus in front of me. And so it's a foreign body sensation. So you have to differentiate between dysphagia and a foreign body sensation in the throat. And I think that's important. And I'll ask the patients very bluntly about that, as, as do our, 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 our trainees. Uh, if someone has a foreign body sensation but not true dysphagia, then I think you're, you are required to do certain things. Number one, you have to, of course, look at the ringlefarynx. You know, you have to make, you know, routine flexible laryngoscopy. But there's more to it than that. We know from some good work done in, in the GI world, and some in ours as well, that a lot of people will point above the clavicles as where they're having trouble, but they'll have distal esophageal pathology. Referred sensation, not unlike, not unlike a hypopharyngeal tumor or a kid with a tonsillectomy pointing to their, their ear and saying, oh my gosh, you know, this kid's got an ear infection after a tonsillectomy again. Or, God forbid, a T3 piriform lesion and they're getting antibiotics for, you know, an ear infection when they need a, you know, a laryngopharyngectomy. We see this in the esophagus as well, that people with a foreign body sensation um, will have distal esophageal pathology. So part of our foreign body sensation evaluation is you have to look at the esophagus. Our preference is to look with our eyes with in-office transnasal esophagoscopy. It's quick, easy, very well tolerated. If a patient isn't keen on that or if they really had trouble with the laryngoscopy and they're not going to tolerate it, then we'll, we will settle for a barren swallow in those patients. Then you can look your patient in the eye and you can tell them there's nothing bad going on. And can you deal with it or not? And the vast majority of people, you know, they may get an empiric trial of anti-reflux therapy. Often they will have already had that before they see me. Um, but only a small proportion want to go further than that. And that would be high-resolution manometry and so on. It's maybe impedance monitoring as well. I don't go down that road with everybody unless the patient's willing to undergo surgery. So I tell them, you know, would you have an operation if you thought there was a 25%, 30% chance this would get better? And if the answer is, oh, gosh, no, this is just a nuisance, then what's the point of getting any more tests? You know there's not cancer. There's not a stricture. They're not going to die from anything, so they don't need anything beyond that. The patient says, yeah, I'll let you dilate or Botox my crack and fringes. Yeah, I'll let you do an endoscopic myotomy. Well, then you might as well go down that road. But I don't do it unless the patient is willing to go down that road willingly with me. Yeah. Um, what are the common errors uh, you see in the management of dysphagia by by the residents, fellows, or, or the general otolaryngologist out there? I guess the, the common problems, I think, is that most of them don't want to do it. And I think that's that's an indictment of our training programs more than anything else. The, the majority of the otolaryngology training programs in this country, even places that have laryngology centers, voice centers, don't do much dysphagia. And they kind of give that away to um, our GI colleagues, occasionally our thoracic surgery colleagues. If it's not a Zenkers, we don't care about it. And, and you go away kind of thing. And you see that everywhere. I see it with my fellows. I'll get fellows sometimes uh, that truly know next to nothing about the evaluation and management of the patient with dysphagia. And they come from, you know, sometimes rather well-known programs. And they just don't know anything about it. And everything, it's a Zenkers or it's a G2 kind of thing. So I think the, the number one biggest problem is our, our own training. And that's that's my fault. That's 
otolaryngology faculties all around the country. But I think it's changed. It's improving over time. As laryngology has become its own discipline in the last few decades, um, the last 30 years, and dysphagia is becoming a part of that, I think that's going to get uh, less and less of a problem. I think the prime things that I'm seeing, mistakes, if you will, I hate to call them that, but the things that are overlooked is I think an over-reliance on the diagnosis of reflux. And once again, I'm a big believer in reflux as a cause or a, um, a cofactor. A lot of things we deal with in our world as otolaryngologists. And I know in pediatrics, in your world, it's, it's, it's maybe even bigger, especially in the airway world. It's huge. But too many people blame reflux for everything in the head and neck. And they're on sometimes twice daily PPIs for months before anyone's even done a variable swallow or anyone's ever done an esophagoscopy. And so I think that's, that's, that's not a good way to go in these individuals. And so, an esoph- you know, esophagitis, if it's not better in two weeks, this is pretty much from our gastroenterology colleagues, PPI treatment for two weeks should take care of routine esophagitis. If it doesn't, you need to look. Either you look yourself or you refer to a gastroenterology colleague who's interested in these kind of patients. So I think that's a big thing. And the other thing I've seen missed a lot is forgetting, once again, forgetting to look in the esophagus when people point about the clavicles. I've seen people with um, adenocarcinomas, eosinophilic esophagitis, strictures, rip-roaring um, esophagitis, and so on and so forth um, that was missed uh, because the modified barium swallow was normal. And people didn't look at the rest of the upper aerodigestive tract. I think you've probably uh, talked to some of this already, but going forward, what new developments or what are the what are the innovations that are going to help us uh, better evaluate these patients and potentially manage them going forward? I guess there's a, there's a lot of different things. I think the understanding of the team concept and the evaluation and treatment with their speech pathology, there's nothing new or innovative, mm. but I think people are becoming more and more attuned to that. And they are realizing how important that is. That's not new, but I think it, we're beaten on it at every possible meeting. Um, whether or not it's otolaryngology or speech therapy is the importance of a team over, especially head and neck cancer patients. If you get chemo radiation therapy, you need to be working both with the surgeon and a speech pathologist. So I think it, a re-emphasis of that is vital. I think it's high resolution renometry has changed, the last decade has changed our understanding of basic esophageal physiology. It's not just a clinical tool, but it's really, really changed how we look at the esophagus in many different ways. And I think we're just scratching the surface in the last two or three years with starting to learn how we can really use that as a tool for the pharynx and cricopharyngeus regions. Now we've got 3D sensors we can use up there. I've got some pretty neat videos now of high-resolution manometry of that area. Not sure how we're going to use it. Like now they're just nice little videos I can stick at the end of a PowerPoint presentation, and they look cruel. Uh, but I think we're going to learn, once again, more about the physiology. And hopefully, from that, be able to learn how to better treat uh, these patients as well. I think innovations and in ways to, whether or not it's medical cytoprotection, of the, the pharynx neparesophagus under inpatients in chemo radiation therapy, we've got to find some way to decrease the toxicity up there. It is remarkable how many of our patients have sequelae. I don't like to call it a complication. That's not fair. 
Um, I don't like, you know, when people have symptoms after I operate them, I don't like to call it complications. But these are known sequelae, mm. and we need to figure out ways to better serve these people, whether or not it's intensive swallowing all during the therapy, whether or not, whether it's electric stimulation, potentially either externally applied or even implanted, just to keep the muscles working during the height of the mucositis of the chemoradiation therapy, whether or not there's pharmacologic therapy that could be of benefit. But I think that there's going to have to be a breakthrough in that area in the next decade because we've got just a giant community of people that are absolutely miserable um, following the therapy we now have for them. Well, thank you very much. I think it's been a, a, an interesting and wide-ranging discussion on what is a huge topic in reality. Um, and I'd like to thank you very much for your time. We're going to finish with the final word. So the final word is that opportunity to touch on something during the course of the discussion that we we didn't get to that you think goes to the heart of it or, or to really hammer home a point that you think is uh, is critical in any discussion of dysphagia. So I'm going to hand it over to you, uh, Dr. Postman, for the final word. All right. Now, thank you very much. I'm going to say three different things. And it's the third time I've mentioned the team concept. But that cannot be overemphasized. We're a team with our speech language pathologists. Number two is going to be education. We look at other disciplines, GI or pulmonary, and they're missing things. Well, we're missing things ourselves in that our programs are not training enough otolaryngologists to know enough about the evaluation management of swallowing disorders. And number three is not forgetting about the esophagus. We are laryngologists, and that includes the esophagus. Chevalier Jackson started this a long time ago. It's part of our legacy, and I think it's important for us, both in the adult and the pediatric world, to not forget about the esophagus. Well, that's the end of this uh, podcast uh, in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. You can find these podcasts on Stitcher or iTunes uh, to download for free. You can always contact us either through the website entexpertopinion.com or at our email address. Thank you again.